Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. We are in a series, it's gonna be roughly a year long, where we are walking through verse by verse the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. We call it 1 Corinthians. And because it's such a long series, we're dividing it up into different, what we're calling seasons, sort of like a Netflix show or a podcast. Season one was entitled Fool's Gold. Season two is entitled Failure to Launch because in chapter three, verse one, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and he said to them, "Um, I, I wish you were further along by now. You're infants, but I wish that you were growing towards maturity, growing toward adulthood. And in the first week of the season, we said that growth gets stunted when God gets sidelined. And then we said that the life we crave is on the other side of the honesty that we fear. Last week, we said that the voices we listen to either are a source of life or they are a pathway to pain. And then tonight, we're going to look at one more way that our growth gets stunted and that we stop growing in our faith. You know, I think you'd agree with me that um, during the COVID season, there was sort of just a, a latent weirdness that rose to the surface. There's some strange things that happened over that two year period, weren't there? I mean, it started with the rush for toilet paper at the grocery stores, right? But it didn't end there. And I would argue that one of the strangest things that happened during COVID was that a documentary on Netflix entitled Tiger King rose to the top of the charts. Roughly 34.3 million people watched that quote unquote documentary over the first 10 days that it was released. Now, If you haven't seen the show and you're Googling it right now, stop. This is not an endorsement for the show. You should not go watch it. But it was a show about a guy that had um, essentially a zoo that had all these exotic pets and animals in it, uh, mainly tigers. And he would go into the tiger's cage and he would pet the tiger and he'd snuggle up to the tiger. And the tiger was sort of like, like a pet to him uh, that, that he cared for and had close contact with. Just so we're all on the same page. A tiger is an apex predator. You all know that, right? That it is, its DNA is wired to kill whatever is alive and steps into its cage. And this guy would just go in there. It shouldn't surprise any of us that many of the people working with him had lost limbs because of their work with these tigers, right? They're apex predators. They want to destroy. That's one approach to predators. I don't share that approach. In fact, I'm a little bit of a chicken when it comes to animals that might want to kill me. Anybody else with me? I was on a run just the other day on Friday and my dog Louie and I were up on the other side of Mule Hill and we were running in this flat area and I was just sort of in the zone. Just, it's my time to worship and pray. And so I was just uh, worshiping and praying. And then about 20 feet from us um, appeared a coyote. And um, Louie thought that he had found his long lost crazy uncle and he was like going after him. And the coyote thought that he had found breakfast And I was in the middle trying not to broker this deal, right? And so um, I yell out something like, boo, right? And go away and and bad coyote, right? And I'm not sure if the coyote spoke English or not, but I'm just yelling at him, right? Get away. And we started to sort of creep up and eventually the coyote just took off. 
And I started to think about our different approach to predators in our life. And I don't know if you're aware, but the scriptures call sin a predator. And I think that there are some who treat that predator like a tiger that they climb into a cage with and snuggle up with and make friends with something that longs to destroy them. See, there's this story at the very beginning of the scriptures. It's about two brothers, Cain and Abel. One of the brothers, his name is Cain, he brought an offering to the Lord of fruits. And his brother brought an offering of animals. And the Lord looked upon Abel's offering with favor. And Cain became really, really angry with God. And God pulled him aside to have a conversation with him. And the conversation went like this. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? Hey, Cain, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Do the, do the next right thing. But if you do not do what is right, Sin is crouching at your door. Do you hear that predatory language? It's, it's there. It wants to destroy. It wants to take you down. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. So page four of the scriptures, we find out that sin wants to have us, to dominate us, to rule over us, and that we have to learn to either rule over sin or it will rule over us, but there's no in-between. You can keep reading and you can find out what Cain did. He didn't heed this warning. He gave in to jealousy and anger. He killed his brother and it eventually destroyed his life. Why? Because he didn't take sin that was crouching at his door seriously. He snuggled up to it. He, he tolerated it. And today, tonight, we're going to talk about sin. And I think there's times where we snuggle up to it also. And I think Jesus has a word for us, both individually and for us corporately as a church body. Because one of the ways that we get stuck, one of the ways we stop growing, one of the ways we sort of hit a ceiling of growth in our life of faith is by not taking sin in our life seriously. And I want you to hear at the onset that this message is not about whether or not you're forgiven. It's about whether or not you're free. It's not about whether or not you're forgiven. It's about whether or not you're free. Because when sin grows, life always shrinks. When sin grows, life always shrinks. If you have your note sheet out, I'd invite you to write that down. It's not a fill in the blank for you, but I think it's important for us to just, as we begin our time together tonight, to realize that when sin grows, when we snuggle up to sin, the life we were designed to live always, always shrinks. Which is the very thing that Paul addresses when he wrote to the church in Corinth in what we call chapter five. If you have your Bible, will you open with me? First Corinthians chapter five. And as you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of context and sort of where we left off last week. Last week, we read verse 21 of chapter four, where the apostle Paul said, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a spirit of love and gentleness? And he says to them, hey, we're gonna have a hard conversation. And the way that we have this will be determined by how you approach me. And he says, listen, it can either be a rod or it can be gentleness. I think first Corinthians chapter five is a little bit of a rod. I think it's a hard conversation that Paul has with the church because they need to hear this truth that he is speaking to them. First Corinthians chapter five, verse one. Are you there? Right on, here we go. It says this. 
it is actually reported, and just a quick timeout, this is in the Greek, it, it means that it's widespread. Everybody knows. There's nobody within the church and probably many within the community at large that are aware of the situation. And remember that 1 Corinthians is a response by Paul to things that he hears are going on in the church. It's reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Now, the word translated sexual immorality is actually one word in the Greek. It's the word porneia. And it quite literally means any form of sexual expression that falls outside of the God-ordained way that we express our sexuality, which is covenantal, heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong marriage. And so Paul says there's sexual immorality among you, and it's of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. So there's something going in, on in the church sexually where those outside of the church are looking to the church and they're going, gosh, that's messed up. That, that's messed up. And that's saying something for the people of Corinth to say that about the church because Corinth wasn't exactly known for its high moral standards. In fact, to Corinthianize was a verb in the ancient world that meant to be extremely promiscuous and to sort of sleep around. And so they're saying, the people outside of the church are saying back to the church, that ain't right. What's the situation? Paul goes on to explain. For a man has his father's wife. Now, I just imagine that there's somebody here tonight or watching online, you invited your mom to come with you or your stepmom or your mother-in-law, you've been praying and tonight's finally the night she came. And you're like, oh my gosh, I should have read the passage before I invited her, right? Like, <laughs> this is an appropriate time to lean over to her and say, it's not always like this, right? Uh, for a man has his father's wife. And by the way, by the way, Every time people talk about, we've got to get back to being like the early church. I'm just praying that this isn't what they're talking about, right? Like I'm praying they have in their mind Acts 2 or Acts 4, not 1 Corinthians 5. But this was a part of the early church. It was messy. It was imperfect. It was broken, just like our churches are, right? For a man has his father's wife. Most people think that what's going on is that this man was, was married and his wife passed away and he married a younger woman. And his son, living in the same household as his father, starts to have an attraction to and eventually acts out sexually uh, with his father's wife. That's why Paul doesn't say a man has his mom. He says he has his father's wife. Now, it's important to note that incest was definitely forbidden in the Old Covenant. You can read about that in Leviticus chapter 18. It was also forbidden by Roman law. And so Paul's saying what's going on inside of the church is actually fracturing the very core of why we exist. That freedom in Christ does not give people the ability and license to do whatever they want. And I think Paul wants to say if there are no sexual boundaries within the church, there is no potential for true community. And he uses this word that's really a buzzword in our day and our time of tolerated, right? To toleration and being tolerant of other people's opinions is something that we often talk a lot about in our cultural moment. And I don't think toleration is a bad thing. In fact, it's probably the best thing that you can do when you disagree with somebody. You tolerate them. 
And they hopefully tolerate you. You choose not to see eye to eye. You put up with each other. That's what tolerated means. And Paul says, that's a fine approach in relationships where you don't see eye to eye on certain things. And it's a terrible approach to sin in your life. That when you start to tolerate sin, when you snuggle up to it like like a tiger, it wants to destroy you and it wants to kill you. And it's a devastating, horrible approach to sin in your life. See... The truth of the matter is that tolerance of sin dishonors God, it destroys lives, and it destroys community. It's just a little bit of anger, just a little bit of lust, just a little bit of dishonesty. No no big deal. We We can just tolerate that, put up with it. And I think there's a number of reasons that we we tolerate sin. Uh, One of them is that we just can't imagine another way. It's just become such a part of our life that we can't imagine breaking free from it. Or maybe we've just become lazy and our mental maps are just worn. And so to think about something another way, to do something another way, that would take an awful lot of work. Or maybe we're just ignorant of it and we don't see it. Or maybe, just maybe, and please lean in and please listen to this because if this is you, it's gonna be hard to hear it tonight, but I'm praying the spirit of God would break through. Maybe, just maybe our hearts have grown hard. We don't even hear the voice of God anymore because we've tolerated it for so long. Regardless of the reason, whenever we tolerate sin, it robs us of life. And so the apostle Paul wants to write to the church and he wants to give them a pathway forward that would be both difficult and redemptive, that would speak a word of hope and a word of caution. And so here's what he says to the church. He lays out this pathway forward that goes beyond tolerance. Verse two. And you are, say it with me, Emmanuel Faith. You are arrogant. Like the, the young man that's sleeping with his stepmom, he's beating his chest about it. He's, he's proud of it. He's broadcasting it. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. And I would say that, um, let's just zoom out a little bit. There's a lot that's changed in the last 2000 years. Some things have not changed because what we see here is that people are arrogant or prideful about sexual sin that they should have not been prideful or arrogant about. And I think you can see the same thing in our culture today. Did you know that 30% of the data on the internet right now is pornography. But it's not just widespread data. There's widespread acceptance and endorsement of that data. That there's many in the psychological field right now, in therapy, who suggest to couples who are struggling in their marriage that they introduce pornography into their marriage. And I just wanna say, that is an absolute lie from the pit of hell. But it's a way that we're arrogant about something that we shouldn't be arrogant about. And Paul goes on, and he's going to address that and what to do with that person. But before we get there, before we get there, I think it's important to identify what Paul's not talking about. See, he's talking about an attitude of sin. That's the first thing he wants to confront. He's not talking about somebody who's struggling. Someone who keeps giving in to temptation, but they go, gosh, Spirit of God, help me break free. 
He's not talking about someone who's sincerely trying to follow Jesus, but keeps falling a little bit short. Anybody want to say, that's me, right? Anybody want to say they're still imperfect? Just raise your hand if you're still imperfect, right? That's all of us, right? And he's not talking about people who are on this journey of sanctification. And sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back. But we are longing to become more and more formed into the image of Christ. That's not who he's talking to. He's talking to somebody who's arrogant and prideful about their sin, who's flaunting it in front of everyone. And I think it's really important for us to identify that because I'm convinced the Spirit of God, if you're sort of on the fence tonight, if you're on the verge and you're struggling, the Spirit of God wants you to know that the enemy's voice wants to twist this passage and whisper in your ear, they should kick you out too. If they ever found out, you'd be ostracized. Keep it hidden. Keep it in the shadows. You're never going to be good enough. Let's cut that lie off at the pass and acknowledge the situation that Paul's writing to and the point that he's making. He is calling the church to respond to sin with grief rather than with celebration. That's his challenge to them. And I love that he uses this word mourn. If you have your own Bible out or maybe that First Corinthians journal that we handed out at the beginning of the series, would you circle that word? Because typically we mourn when, when something dies or someone dies. And that's exactly why Paul calls the church to mourn because sin always kills, steals, and destroys. I did some uh, study this week about what dies when sin is introduced into our lives, even the lives of believers. What happens? And here's an incomplete study, but listen to a few of these things that start to happen. Sin robs us of the joy of salvation. It robs us of peace. It causes anguish in our physical bodies. Did you know that? That sin actually affects our physical body. It hinders fellowship with God. If you've ever felt like God is silent or distant, maybe it's because you've climbed into the lion's cage and have snuggled up and are tolerating that which God says, don't tolerate. Sin causes separation and isolation from others. It causes ineffectiveness in prayer. It causes us to become fearful. It gives the devil a foothold in our lives. And Paul's first challenge to the church as they move forward and start to address sin in their life, rather than being okay with it, is to grieve over it. And we grieve because sin kills some of the good that we were created for. Life is more bland, joy is more muted, the colors are more gray because of sin in our life. And Paul says it should break our hearts rather than cause us to celebrate. So let me just invite you to pray, uh, even just right now, God, would you break my heart over what breaks yours? What in my life breaks your heart? Help us see it. And then help us respond to it boldly, which is exactly where Paul goes next, verse three. He says, for though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced, say it with me, man of faith, judgment on the one who did such a thing. Okay. Now, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, my guess is you're thinking, gosh, Paul, you've talked a little bit about judgment, but never in this way. 
In chapter two, verse 15, he said that the spiritual person is judged by no one. In chapter four, Paul writes to the church of Corinth, they're judging him and he says, hey, stop judging me. I don't even judge myself. And isn't it Jesus who said in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not that you be not judged? So what's the deal? Should we judge or shouldn't we judge? And this is where pastors usually go. Well, here's what the Greek says. And um, so let me tell you what the Greek says. (laughs) Um, The Greek is not helpful because it uses the exact same word when it talks about judging in a positive way and judging in a negative way. It's krino in both instances. And so really what we need to do is we need to step back and we need to go, all right, it's the context that really, really matters. And when people within the church or outside of the church are judging in a sense where they are pronouncing ultimate and final condemnation, that is always wrong because that is only God's job. Only God can judge in that way. But what Paul's talking about here is he's talking about a response, a discerning response to sin that is destroying the church. And so when we use the term judge in a positive way, what we're really talking about is discernment, walking forward in a path of wisdom. And so Paul's discerning what's going on in the church and he gives them a path forward. It's not an easy path, but here's what he says, verse four. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Somebody say, ouch. Yeah, I mean, it's a strong response, is it not? And see, Paul views the church as family. And so he knows that when this egregious sin is allowed to go on and is even being celebrated, it destroys the very community that all of them long to be a part of. And so in the first century, to remove somebody from the church was a way of taking the protective covering away from them so that they would be face to face with their sin and essentially hit rock bottom and come to their senses. Now, there's some debate in the commentaries and throughout church history about what it means to deliver this man over Satan to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. One view would say, essentially, kick this person out of the church and they would view the destruction of the flesh as the destruction of the physical body. So you might read it, kick this person out of the church so that they die, but when they die, they'll at least go to heaven. That's one view. The second view views this, this word flesh in a sin, as the sinful nature, which is often the way that Paul used it. He wrote about the battle of the flesh and the spirit, right? And so you could read it that way of kick this person out of the church so that they might come face to face with their sin and then repent and be welcomed back into the community of faith, both now and forever. But either way, regardless of how you view this verse, either way, we have to know that any sort of church discipline like this is ultimately redemptive. It's restorative. It's not punitive but let's, let's zoom out. Why is Paul writing this? And what would he say to us today? I think he'd say, confront sin with intentionality, not with ignorance. And he confronts it very intentionally. Kick this person out, remove this person from the body. 
And I think what he's pushing back against is this sort of idea of let's just ignore it and it'll go away. Let's just snuggle up to the lion and no big deal. Eventually the lion will, will just leave us alone and, 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 and let's just ignore it and hopefully it'll disappear on its own. And Paul says, no, no, no. That is not the way that followers of Jesus who are serious about growing in their faith deal with their sin. If we don't take sin seriously, we will never walk in victory. And so Paul would echo what the great Puritan author and pastor John Owen said later on, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It might be a quote worth writing down. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That without intentionality that leads to action, we are doomed to have sin rule over us and rob us of the life and freedom that Jesus designed us to walk in. To give some biblical language to it, the apostle Paul would write to the church at Colossae, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Like this is an active waging of war against what's earthly in us. And you go, well, what is that? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Let me just let that sit there for a moment. So how do we put to death the sin that wants to kill us? Let me give you a few ideas. Number one, um, I think confession should be a regular part of our lives that we bring our vulnerable self before the throne of God and say, search me and know me. And whatever you point out, I'm gonna name and I'm gonna bring before you believing that I have a platform to be honest and a pathway to come home. It also means that we confess our sins to one another, James said, so that we might be healed. It means that we're renewed by the uh, uh, transformation of our mind. We tell ourselves what's true, what's right, what's beautiful, we dwell on those things. Uh, The Puritans of which John Owen was one had this saying that they wanted to feed their affections for Christ. One of the ways they, they killed the sin that wanted to kill them was they fed their affections for Christ. They did things that made them fall more in love with Jesus. They did things that made their heart open up to the glory of God and the love of the Father. They did things like studying. They did things like getting out in nature. They did things like being silent with God or things like confession and prayer. They did things that fed their affection for Jesus. And that's the way that we start to put to death what is earthly, within us. But sometimes we need people to come alongside of us. Sometimes we need people to have hard conversations. And and no doubt, that's exactly what Paul's pointing out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Kick this person out, but there were some steps that I presume the church went through before they got to this step that we don't read about in 1 Corinthians 5, but we do read about in the teaching of Jesus. And here's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother over. So so what's the first step when someone is caught in a pattern of sin and you want to come alongside of them? Go to the person directly. Go to the person directly. And you go, okay, well, what what if they don't listen then? The goal of going to them directly, by the way, is to identify a sin and invite them to repentance. But what if they don't listen? If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I presume they did this with the man in the church, and he kept saying no. Step two, take others with you. What if they still say no? 
Well, if they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church, take more people with you, okay? And if he refuses to listen even then to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What's step three? Remove the person from fellowship. Now, it's really interesting when Jesus says, treat the person as a Gentile or tax collector. Um, I think my hand probably would have gone up in the air and said, hey, Jesus, you treat Gentiles and tax collectors really well. What do you mean by that? And I think what he would say is, I do treat them well, and I do love them well, but I also treat them as people who are outsiders, not yet a part of the family of faith. And so we have different kinds of interaction. Do we love them? Absolutely, yes, we love them, but we treat them as people who are on the outside of the community of faith, not on the inside. We love them well enough to try to bring them in. And that's exactly what Jesus would say you do with somebody who's caught in a pattern of sin that's wounding other people. You eventually may have to kick them out of fellowship, but you do not remove love from them. Now, this kick them out of fellowship, I think needs to be uh, at least nuanced a little bit with many of the other things that we read in scripture about the way that we handle people who are caught in sin, which at some point will be all of us. Amen? Right? Like this is, we're not talking about other people. We're talking about how we interact with people who are very close to us and how we want people to interact with us. So listen to some of the other ways that scripture talks about this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should, what? Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And the burdens here are the transgressions. Bear with them, bear their burdens. And in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. And it was Jesus himself who said, I have come for those, not who, I've come, those who are well, have no need for a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Friends, that's all of us. That's how all of us entered this community of faith. But what Paul is saying is that we need to be healthy enough on the inside so that we can help those on the outside heal when they get in. And when we tolerate sin, we start to erode the very thing that we long to give to those who are not yet a part of our community. And so you might be asking, okay, well, Paulson, do we do, we do that here? Because that's something Emmanuel Faith does. Yes, yes. Our elders have a church disciplinary committee that's formed when issues of blatant and arrogant sin rise up. We do exactly what the scriptures call us to do. Now, gratefully, we don't have to do this all that often. It's always painful when we do. And whenever we do, it's for the purpose of restoration and wholeness and healing and life. But yeah, we're a church that longs to follow the scriptures. And so when things arise like this, we step in and do exactly what Jesus commanded and what the apostle Paul taught the church in Corinth. And listen to what Paul says next, verse six. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And he starts to use this metaphor for what's going on in the church. He uses the metaphor of leaven and leaven did two things. Number one, it puffs up bread. And number two, it weaves and works its way through the entire 
batch. You put a little in and it spreads to the whole thing. And Paul's point is the impact of sin is not solely individual. It's communal. Sin always spills over. And it usually spills over from our life into the lives of those who are closest to us and the lives of those we love most. And so Paul wants the church to address it because it will spread its unhealth to everyone who's apart. And so he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Now, if you have your own Bible, will you circle this as you really are line? We'll come back to it in just a moment. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And I think what Paul's saying when he says, as you really are, he's saying that your toleration of the presence of this egregious sin within your midst is eroding the very foundation of your identity. You're forgetting who you are because you're tolerating this and you're putting up with it, which begs the question, who are we? If you go back to chapter one, verse two, the apostle Paul calls the church in Corinth sanctified saints. That is who we are. You are, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. By faith, you are somebody who Christ has died for, someone who Jesus has forgiven, someone who the spirit is living in and setting free. That's what's true. But when we tolerate sin in our life and in our community, who we really are is covered by who we no longer are. And Paul's saying, I long for you to be free, not just forgiven, but I long for you to be free. And I think what he's saying to them is you've got to understand that grace frees us from sin. It's not an excuse to sin. And I think for too long, we have just viewed grace as a get out of jail free card, as a you are now forgiven of your past and your present and you are forgiven in the future. Praise be to God, you are holy before his throne. You stand positionally before him as righteous because of the blood of Jesus. If you believe it, somebody say amen. But I think we've forgotten to say on the other side of that, that his grace also empowers us to walk in freedom right now, today. It doesn't just forgive us, it also empowers us to move forward, to become the people who Jesus designed us to become and to experience all the joy that he designed us to walk in. And Paul is just devastated because he's saying to them, this is who you really are, but you're not actually living into it. You're not living it out because you've tolerated the sin that wants to destroy you and it is destroying you. And I think for some of you, maybe that's a word tonight, that grace is not just, not just freedom from the punishment of sin. It is freedom from the power of sin also. And we can walk in that freedom by his grace. Paul continues, here's what he says. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. Now this is a, a, a bit pointed, isn't it? Does Paul want the church to be removed from the world? No. No, he's saying, no, go ahead. 
associate with the sexually immoral, greedy, and the swindlers. Like, they need Jesus. And part of Jesus' design is that you, the church, would be in interaction and relationship with them and having dinner with them so that they might hear the good news of the gospel. He said, I'm not asking you to tap out on that. But I'm writing you, he says in verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. And most people think this idea of eating is referring to the communion meal, not celebrating communion with somebody who is in blatant sin, as in the case of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And wow, I read this, you guys, and I went... I think we got this backwards a lot of the time. I think we got this backwards. Paul summarizes what he's saying, verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's not my job, Paul says. They're not saying that they have the same standard as us. So why are we trying to hold them to a standard that they don't claim to have? He goes, it doesn't make any sense. Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. This is a challenging passage because I think we often invert this. It's a great book. It came out um, maybe a decade ago now. It's called Unchristian by Dave uh, Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. And in it, they interviewed a bunch of people who weren't yet followers of Jesus and asked them, what do you think about those in the church? And two of the words <clears throat> that came back strongest were, hypocritical and judgmental. And I think it should cause us to pause and to ask, Lord, have we, have we mixed this up? Because Paul is calling the church in Corinth and us to focus on sin inside the church and maybe even inside of ourselves rather than in society at large. And I'm sure that, that serves up all sorts of questions for you like it does for me. But I think that at the core of it, this is what Paul is saying. That the church is designed to model God's kingdom here on earth and to reveal what God's design looks like played out in real life. And that means that our relationships should be more healthy and more whole than anybody else on the face of the planet. That means that our marriages should be life-giving and they should be flourishing. It means that our kids should be absolutely um, flourishing because of the love that they receive. It means that there should be healing and restoration and forgiveness and hope and coming back together when things are broken because we all know that we are imperfect, every single one of us. But Paul says, that's the focus for the church. Get your own house in order rather than launching grenades to those who, at those who are not yet a part of the church. And I think that we've gotten that wrong. Yeah, the church isn't called to judge the world because they don't have the same standards that we have. We love people and we lead them to Jesus and we create a safe community for people to heal and to be restored. But part of that means that we need to be healthy and whole rather than living in the 1 Corinthians 5 sin. And I think that there's a challenge for us here, you guys. And I just wanna press on us a little bit tonight. And maybe say back to God, God, would you, would you search me? Would you know me? I don't know about you, but I, I long for a time when, instead of what was happening in Corinth where people outside the church were looking at the church and going, that ain't right, that's messed up. And I think that happens today in our time too. 
People look at some of the moral failures. They look at all some of the things going on in the church and they go, I would never wanna be a part of that. I'm longing for a day when the church of Jesus shines like a city on a hill that's salt and light to the community where people look at it and go, I don't know what's going on there, but I've got to be a part of that because God is at work. People are breaking free. Life is on the move. And I'm convinced that a church pursuing purity is a church poised for potency. And I don't know about you, but I long to be that church and I long to become more that person. I love the way that commentator David Pryor put it when he said this, the world is waiting to see a church that takes sin seriously, that enjoys forgiveness fully, that in its times of gatherings combines joyful celebration with an awesome sense of God's immensity and authority and presence. And to that I say, yes, I want it all. I want it all. This Tuesday, last Tuesday, I had the chance to go to our uh, Truths That Transform graduation class. And anytime I'm invited to go to the Truths That Transform graduation, I go because it is an encouragement to my soul. There's about 150 people in the room, uh, many of whom had gone through the 24 week class and it was the end graduation and about an hour of the time was spent people in the class coming before the class and testifying about what God had done in their lives over the last few months. And oh my goodness, church, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. People sharing stories of breaking free from patterns of sin, from thoughts that had been destroying them, from things that had happened in their past. Jesus was at work and on the move. One graduate said, I learned how to take toxic lies captive and it has changed the way that I live. See, because people are breaking out of that tiger cage. They're, they're saying back to God, God, I don't wanna tolerate that which is killing me and has robbed life from me for years and maybe decades. I know I'm forgiven, but I long for freedom. And that's the kind of church that Jesus is inviting us to become more and more. And if you want that, you are invited to be a part here. And I know there's some people that read chapter five of 1 Corinthians and they go, we gotta kick more people out. They're usually not thinking about themselves, number one. <laughs> but number two, I think that there's something bigger going on. I think we need to take sin more seriously. I think we need to grieve over our sin. I think we need to, to address our sin. I think we need to disempower our sin by grace. And I think we need to get our own house in order. And I think that's the message that Jesus would have us hear. So would you pray with me? Would you just open your hands maybe to God? Just, just open on your legs. And would you just ask Jesus what he wants you to hear tonight? What word does he wanna to speak to you? I mean, maybe he wants to awaken you to the ways that, that maybe you are tolerating what you would consider to be little sins. Maybe he wants to invite you to grieve. Maybe he wants to invite you to fight 
maybe he wants to invite you to trust. Would you just ask him, Lord, what is it? What are you saying? God wants to just do some business with us tonight. We're gonna sing one last song. And as we do that, I just invite you, maybe right where you are, if you'd like to kneel down, you can. If you'd like to stand and raise your hands, you can. If you'd like to come up front to the altar, you can come up front, you can kneel here. But let's just ask God to do a work in our hearts. We don't wanna let this moment pass where the spirit of God wants to quicken us and awaken us and invite us to more life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are forgiven, but you might not be free. Would you ask him to set you free? Lord, do your work. Holy Spirit, come. We don't wanna tolerate that which wants to kill us. We wanna pursue you Jesus, the one who's given life to us. Help us throw aside the sin that so easily entangles. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, let us run the race you've set before us. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.